1: Hello, welcome to episode 177. Today I'll conclude the interview with Bart Selman. Bart is professor of computer science at Cornell University, and he's been helping people understand the potential and limitations of AI for several decades, commenting on computer vision, self-driving vehicles, and autonomous weapons, among other technologies. He researches several topics in artificial intelligence and has co-authored over 100 papers, receiving a National Science Foundation Career Award and an Alfred P. Sloan Research Fellowship. He is a member of the American Association for Artificial Intelligence, AAAI, and a fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. He was also a co-organizer of a seminal meeting in 2009 at Asilomar, California, on long-term AI futures, an AAAI presidential panel. Asilomar was chosen for its symbolic value, Biologists had gathered there in 1975 to discuss the hazards of their research in the age of modern genetics. And again in 2017, a group of AI researchers gathered in Asilomar for a workshop and conference where they generated a set of 23 statements known as the Asilomar Principles. These address the responsible use and development of artificial intelligence as it matures into capabilities that were not predictable at the time and... We'll reference them in the interview. We'll talk about self-driving cars, the capability of large language models to synthesize knowledge across many human domains, Richard Feynman, our understanding of language, Bertrand Russell, AIs as co-authors on research papers, and where Bart places us on a scale of artificial general intelligence ability. Let's get back to the interview with Bart Selman. Here we are, we've been talking from an insider's point of view about something that could be quite scary to outsiders when we're saying, hey, there's this huge technology that's come along. It's doing far more than we thought could be possible at the time, and we don't know how it Mm -hmm. works. If you're on the outside, that is really scary. Mm -hmm. And you've been involved for a long time in efforts that were explicitly aimed at how do we prevent scary things from happening, starting with Asilomar in 2009 and again in 2017. I want to talk about the Asilomar principles for a little while, which struck me as a very thoughtful, very good start to a basis for an ethical framework for artificial intelligence at the national or supranational level. And yet they seem to have gotten no traction since then. And yet they... Look like an excellent start. What's your feeling about the type of work that was done there and what could be done with it next and what's happened
0: to it? So, I think it's sort of a very interesting point. I guess in the Asilomar conference, it was a little, it was before, I guess, the deep learning revolution, really. So, the capabilities of the systems were more circumscribed, much more circumscribed. So, it was a little early in some sense. But the principles, I think the general principles are very good. I think what we're seeing now at sort of the national level, the policy making level is we're trying to figure out how to implement uh, such principles and and that's, you know, of course where things get much more challenging and I think the role of a SILMAR meeting was to, to bring this to people's attention and that we should think about it. Companies actually set up their internal boards actually look at these issues, so which I think are a good development. The European Union actually has moved quite far in trying to set up legal frameworks as kind of regulations. I think one of the challenges the field is moving so fast that That by the time any regulation is put in place, you're on to the next sort of capabilities. So that's a little bit concerning. In general, about the risk, I think the risk in my mind, I'm not so much worried about runaway AI systems. I'm sort of, AI is a powerful technology, but we can also. Create AI systems that watch over other AI systems. So so there's sort of a, we're going to actually, I'm sort of hopeful that we can limit sort of obviously harmful effects by basically recognizing what the risks are and then building systems that actually watch over AI systems to limit the potential impact. So I'm I'm somewhat optimistic about that, uh, that that's feasible. I think the aspect that is harder to judge is. The impact on work, on inequality in society, you know, it is clear that you might be able to run a company with one person in an AI system. So there, there are other changes, I think, that are challenging and we really should think about. Now. It's a discussion topic of how this should be managed. Right now, I guess it's a bit of free-for-all, and it's mostly done within big companies. I think it should be, AI can actually have a tremendous positive impact, for example, on healthcare, if it was more generally available to university, non-profit organizations that could build useful systems for people, but maybe not a big money maker, but still could improve lives. So, I'm so sort of hoping that we, we also take an initiative to go after the positive things that can be obtained. And, you know, the medical diagnosis is probably, you always hear like talk to your doctor and <laughs> you want to do this or that. Well, I, I can't get my doctor on the phone. So it would be good. And as far as I know, most people can't get their doctor on the phone. So if you can ask a good medical chat GPT things, that would already be helpful. So there are mm-hmm. some almost low hanging fruit that we could really benefit from in society, could really improve for everyone if these systems were created. So that's, that's a the things, the risks are indeed mm. are there, but maybe not quite in the way that they sometimes are presented as runaway AI systems.
1: Yeah. Right. And I think that's inherent in the presentation of a framework like the principles mm-hmm. that an ethical framework implies that you're limiting risk and now you're put in the same class as something like nuclear weapons, but a framework like the Asilomar principles is not going to contain ones that say hey, do as much of this as you can, this is great. It's perforce going to say, limit this, don't do that, avoid that, because it's about the risk side. It's not saying that the positive things don't exist. It's just saying that this is what we're focusing on here. One of those principles is, quote, there being no consensus, we should avoid strong assumptions regarding upper limits on future AI capabilities, Mm -hmm. end quote. Especially in the light of what's happened in the last year, has your thinking on that changed? Any? Where do you stand with respect to that principle now?
0: Yeah, no, I, I think that's a, a reason, still a reasonable principle in my mind. Yeah, but you're you're right; it's about managing the risks, which I think is a completely reasonable requirement. If someone builds an AI system and a powerful AI system, that they think about how to manage its risks. You know, on a very small scale, I think it is already happening with self-driving cars. So people, you know, interested in building self-driving cars, they know that if the car isn't safe, it will actually have a, you know, a tremendous negative effect on the whole business. So they actually sort of have a self-interest in building very safe self-driving cars. Now, self-driving cars is a circumscribed domain, so it's easier to manage the risk, the big question with the AI system, which I myself don't and I don't think anybody can quite predict. And I think it was Jeff Hinton, actually, who pointed out is it has a level of intelligence. It, it is strange to almost interact with ChatGPT, GPT-4 when you start querying it about any kind of topics that's taught at the university and to realize that it knows as much about it as you know, a very well trained professional in all of these topics. So, so we already have an entity. That in some sense is, is super skilled, at least in the breadths of topics that we haven't seen before. And then the question is sort of, you know, where would that lead? And Jeff Hinton sort of warns that. When you get a more intelligent species, uh, general, it doesn't go well for the less intelligent species. You know, I'm sort of a little more hopeful that we can manage these risks because we can understand. We deal with with people that are smarter than us and people that are more evil than us. So they, we actually have ways of managing risks, and that's what I'm hopeful for. Uh, but it's a new type of risk.
1: Do you think of it as being more intelligent than us at the moment? Or is it more like a lot of people who are each as intelligent as some of us?
0: Yeah, so it's a very good question. The way I actually would put it is because I sort of have tested it, is it's like a large group of, let's say, college-level students. And so when I Push the understanding of gp 4 on a particular topic in computer science that I know a lot about. Then I can see its limitations. I can see that it doesn't quite understand it fully, but its understanding. So, it, so right now, so I wouldn't say it's more. So, on individual domains, I think human experts can still outdo it quite a bit. I would say you know, when we can, and I presumably a lawyer can ask it questions and it says it doesn't quite understand the subtlety of the law. So, a human specialist can still outdo it but there is no human that can match it yeah, at the breast of knowledge and that's sort of the impressive part and what I find impressive part is that there that I've asked it for example to Somebody gave a lecture on semantics of language and sort of the theories of the semantics of language and what the philosophers have thought about it, what linguists have thought about it, what computer scientists, logicians have thought about it. If you ask it to give you a summary of that as a professor, let me ask it to summarize the state of the art in, in that field. It is surprisingly good at that, and my sense it's surprisingly good is because it knows all these different topics so well. So. Individual professors can now do it in their own topic, but not in a hundred different topics. And so, so it leads to surprisingly clear explanation of things because it sees all the connections.
1: So there's something novel there. Well, talking about connections, if as a thought experiment you had a human being that had the knowledge that GPT-4 does in their head, this is being equivalent to having 50,000 expertise in one brain, It's not biologically possible, but if it happened, that person would have phenomenal intelligence because they would also make connections between fields that we never have, no one has been able to do. But there's no, I think, evidence yet that GPT-4 has made new connections between those fields that people haven't seen. So does that perhaps expose something about the nature of how it is or isn't intelligent?
0: Yes, I mean, but people are starting to see that it does give new potential connections I mean, so I would not be surprised if the large language model within next few years will be used for a big scientific breakthrough a new kind of mass proof it's actually Terence Tao I think the mathematician has written about that how he has queried chat DPT to just to get his own mind to see new connections, explore new connections so I think you're quite right it hasn't been able to push, as I said, within a very specialized field, it isn't quite at the top. It isn't among the top humans in a particular topic of mathematics. But it's one level or two levels down, and it can see connections so it can give those connections to a human that is at the top and say okay this is a new way for me to explore a proof or a new connection i could explore so it's, it's something like is it intelligent or not it, it has a different kind of intelligence that comes from okay i have a student that has taken all the courses at cornell and passed them all you know, what can i do with such a person and that person can shed new lights on things then a specialized person can take and, and take further. It, it reminds me, of the like Richard Feynman was famous for his, his ability to, to explain things, to explain complex topics. But I think he also had this ability to have this incredible breadth of knowledge. So, so he knew biology, he knew mathematics, he knew philosophy. So he could bring, I think you could see sort of like very good explanations come from people that have very broad Range of knowledge, and that's sort of what I see in the chat GPT. That kind of intelligence may be slightly different than standard intelligence, and a shortcoming in terms of pure specialization. Has GPT four and its
1: brethren have they caused you to reevaluate your understanding or knowledge of language in any way?
0: Yeah, 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 in, in quite a major way. So I. I'm in a subfield of artificial intelligence that dealt with knowledge representation and reasoning, and, and our challenge was you know, how can we represent human knowledge, and then when you represent the knowledge, how can we draw new facts, new inferences from it? Uh, so it was a whole subfield. It, it was heavily symbolic, so we write down knowledge in a symbolic form uh, using all kinds of formalisms. What I See that JetTPT has done in my mind is has blurred the distinction between formal languages, um, logic, computer languages, mathematics, and natural languages. So, in in a remarkable way, so it seems to be able to go back and forth between a mathematical expression and English language, very much like if you read a math textbook or any engineering book, it's a blend of English with mathematical expressions. And so what the large language models appear to have achieved is knocking down that barrier that we thought was a real distinction between Formal languages, um, like mathematics or logic, and natural language. We thought they were very different things. Apparently not. So and it's that mix in my mind also when I look at mathematics proofs, it's that mix of English, which is somewhat informal, and formalism that makes it so powerful. And that's sort of what the language model shows you. The distinction between formal and natural language may not be as big as we thought. Right? Wow. Yeah.
1: I wonder what Bertrand Russell would have made of this.
0: Oh, they, you know, I, in my lecture, I went Bertrand Russell, we went over Wittgenstein, and, and it's actually, Wittgenstein went, had a first phase and a second phase in his career. Uh, in the second phase, he saw the language was much more about the connections between words and terms. And so he would actually, I think, have enjoyed to see uh, large language models and say, because that sort of confirms that it's all about the connections between words <laughs> and mm-hmm. not so much about the individual words themselves. So, But yeah, for linguists and philosophers, this is an amazing time because a lot of their theories are you know, either challenged or i have to change them. But that's good. You know, it's interesting.
1: Looking at these models as an adjunct to our minds, Mm -hmm. thinking about extended mind hypothesis and about using these as the extensions of our brain. It seems that we're scratching the surface now of what's possible in terms of using these to extend human capability. Have you had thoughts yet about how you can integrate these into your research, your teaching processes around the university Mm -hmm. that could cause some sort of evolutionary change in those domains
0: so yeah so first in my teaching I can see the use is, is very is straightforward but good it does provide you with beautiful explanations of concepts so you get sort of I like to, as I said before, I like to give a lecture on the connection between Wittgenstein and logic and linguistics or theories of meaning. It will give you a very nice uh, summaries of how to connect these areas and how to explain this. So teaching, I guess, it enriches the way we can explain things because often these explanations are somewhat better than we can come up ourselves. And, and I think it's because we ourselves, are a professor is sort of in their own areas. So I mean, computer science, you know, my linguistic knowledge is, of course, limited. My philosophy knowledge is somewhat limited. So you get a richer perspective. In my research, I'm very excited about the potential for scientific discovery. And actually, the kind of, can you discover new mathematical concepts, new uh, useful proof concepts, uh, ways of doing proof, discovering, proving open conjectures. And that's basically an interaction with them. So I have the tools, for example, the formal theory proving tools, but now i have finally a system that can actually generate formal statements of things after we give first an english language description of the theorem so we actually have a new tool that allows us to explore things we were very difficult to explore before and so and i think that's going to it's going to accelerate scientific discovery my colleagues uh, work on material science and other topics where they're starting to use these large language models to help them conjecture new materials based on tens of thousands of years they've seen before. I think so. Finally, I think the time has come where another big change is in the, the literature is, is huge. Right? So the medical literature is huge, and there's always this sort of frustration, like you can't follow all the literature. Now we actually have a system that can has read all the papers and could synthesize uh, new results from a thousand or ten thousand different papers. So we haven't seen the first. True breakthrough, but this technology is very new. I think in the next few years, we'll see papers that sort of have to be co-authors by my large language model, <laughs> or at least acknowledged uh, as being used. So, and the first phase will be this hybrid phase where I think scientists, uh, human scientists come up with the high level questions to explore and use the language models to search mm-hmm. the literature or search for new connections.
1: Right. Initially, there won't be any question that it's a tool. But then if you've got them running in some sort of agent background mode, and one day one pops up and says, hey, I've solved this conjecture, uh, it's going to be really hard to figure out which human should get the credit. So you do have to start thinking about naming it as an author. I think I saw something about molecular chemistry research being done 100 times faster with these models. Artificial general intelligence has come up a lot, we've talked about it, and let's stipulate that it's not useful to say that it's just binary, yes or no, it is or it isn't, zero or one. Let's put it on a continuum, from zero to one, somewhere in between, some fraction. Are we past zero yet? And where do you think we're going to move to in the foreseeable future?
0: So I, you know, if you had asked me this before chat GPT, so that was in the fall of 2022, I would have said we are at zero. Um, so now I actually think we are, especially with GPT-4, which was another jump over 3.5, places at 0.7. so we're quite a ways along. It's a very interesting phenomenon. If you see that this, these models have what's called a threshold phenomenon. So below a certain size, so there are these, these benchmarks of how much reasoning can it do, how much common sense inference does it do. So there's different benchmarks. They were stuck at zero for a long time and or near zero. And then when the model scaled over certain size and, and either just a number of parameters that, that were tuned, suddenly you saw it go up to 20%, 30% and very steep. So that's what happened. And that was literally happened with GPT 3.5 first and now GPT 4. We passed that threshold. So will we get to full? General, actually, that's—I that's, think—one of the interesting questions is in what sense is it different from human intelligence, and I think that's sort of a, a very interesting question. But it will have a good overlap with human intelligence. And I think that's already sort of the case, even in, in general terms. Now there are things in you know, the debates within AI. and People that follow the various developments saying, well, a large language model doesn't have any goals or intentions, or it doesn't have any beliefs and convictions. And so I'm actually of the opinion that those things matter a little less than we think. So, in the sense that the, I see the language model as a component in a larger system, so the larger system may contain extra memory or extra verification or extra computational power to do certain things, you would give it a high level goal and you use the language, large language model, to divide that higher level goals in sub-goals and then decompose the sub-goals in, short, in smaller goals. Then potentially you need to synthesize the subtasks and put everything back together. But this sort of Ability to decompose a higher-level objective into subparts is surprisingly good, and this was actually I worked in the field of AI planning was actually one of the long outstanding problems. And the way you first see it is if you try to prove a mathematical theorem. So if you try to prove a mathematical theorem, the way a human does it is they say, well, if I could prove this and this and this, then I could put everything together. So the human immediately thinks of the subparts it has to show. You can ask ChatGPT and it will say, you know, if you can prove this and this and this, then you do the whole thing. Yeah. It comes up with those sub goal decompositions. And that was an open stunning problem for 20, 30, well, for 40 years in, in AI planning. And uh, now it can do that. And now we can generate plans for the subparts and then put things back together. So I see it sort of as given us capabilities to build quite general systems. So that's why I put it at point seven. It's not full artificial Mm -hmm. intelligence, but very useful to
1: get there. Indeed, and and you reminded me of just how big a problem goal decomposition has been in computer science of, given this, how do you figure out the steps necessary to get there? And, you know, that's PhD Mm level stuff. And in in chat GPT, you just ask it what you want. And it is mind blowing. Sort of working towards the end of our time here. What do you tell or what will you be telling your students about how to leverage this, what direction to go in and what difference to make with
0: their work? So I I sort of tell them two things. First of all, to be very open to using your technology in the right way. So as this amazing knowledge source and tutor and private professor that you can ask questions anytime. So I encourage them to use it that way. Not so much as a chatbot, because I think that's sort of a a limited use. So used as a knowledge source, as an intelligent knowledge source in their work. I guess when they join uh, tech companies, I try to point out how we have to be concerned about the risks and the implications of this kind of technology. How we can make sure, and I actually stress that you know they will be the people who build the systems that use large language models, it's, it's their responsibility as engineers to worry about, the, is this done in an ethically justified way? And they should raise concerns if they think, now, this is not what we want to be building. So that's, it's. I actually say it's, it's their role because the engineer knows what ultimately goes on in the system. The high-level manager probably has very little idea, <laughs> so the engineer, for example, knows what data the system is trained on, you know, is that, was that an ethical use of data? But But in particular, what I saw in the risk of those systems. So I I tell the students to be very aware of that and to think about these things. Because it's this new thing and that gives new capabilities that's exciting, but also brings new responsibilities.
1: Oh, thank you. It's been a, a wonderful discussion. What would you like to tell our audience about where they can find out more about the sort of things that you've been talking about, learn more? Become more comfortable with what 's going on and things that are by you or by other sources that are worth consulting
0: yes i I find there's now a remarkable collection of just articles and podcasts like your podcast there 's quite a bit of good information on the developments that I encourage people to sort of look up and look at the debates. You know, within AI, I should say, there are debates between Jeff Hinton and Jean Lacan. So there are still, there's not a complete consensus of where we are going. So it's very much an open debate. But I think people can participate and can understand the issues. So I encourage people to look those up and Google those. Or the second thing is I always say is, I tell my Thomas you know, pay the $20 to sign up for ChatGPT uh, for <laughs> and use it as ask questions, ask questions you always want to ask. I've on myself, ask questions. Like, yeah, if I had access to a physics MIT professor, I, I, I would ask that person that. But I, I can't disturb him with that. So ask the questions you always wanted to ask about things. Of course, you. People say, oh, it can make up things. But when you ask it things and ask it for explanations and sources, you can double check it. So you can make sure that it makes sense. And then see, you know, this actually enriches your life. You can actually use things. You can can learn things much faster than you could before. So that's what I encourage people to do. And, you know, even if you have never coded, you can now, it says, like, I want a little problem to try out this, and we'll write the code for you. And then you can ask, it, how do I run it? And it will tell you how to run it. So you can do things that you couldn't do before, or you would have required months of study to be able to do them. So I think people should know that this is now possible with GPT-4. So um, but that's actually an exciting time.
1: It certainly is. Bart, thank you for coming here, uh, sharing your optimism and your experience with us. You have been a luminary of this field for a very long time and always seeking to not just study it and measure it, but to be part of moving the needle on how we use this responsibly and understand it ethically. And I, I thank you for that. And thank you for coming on AI and you. Okay, thanks so much. It was a fun conversation. Thank you. That's the end of the interview. Something in there that really excites me is the possibility that a whole new understanding of human language may emerge from the surprises that ChatGPT has wrought upon us all. In today's news, ripped from the headlines about AI, a study by researchers at Stanford and MIT measured the utility of generative AI at work. They generated the first empirical evidence on the effects of a generative AI tool in a real-world workplace. In their setting, they found that access to AI-generated recommendations increased worker productivity, improved customer sentiment, and was associated with reductions in employee turnover. They hypothesized that part of the effect they documented was driven by the AI system's ability to embody the best practices of high-skill workers in the firm. By analyzing the text of agent conversations, they found suggestive evidence that AI recommendations lead low-skill workers to communicate more like high-skill workers. But their findings raise questions about whether and how workers should be compensated for the data that they provide to AI systems. High-skill workers, in particular, played an important role in model development but saw smaller direct benefits in terms of improving their own productivity. That's in line with other research that I have seen that says that the use of generative AI in the workplace improves the performance of the lower skilled workers much more than it does the high-skilled ones. Next week, my guest will be Jan Tallinn, an icon at the intersection of the fields of technology, philanthropy, and artificial intelligence risk. Founding organizations ranging from Skype to the Future of Life Institute. You won't want to miss that. Next week on AI and You. Until then, remember, no matter how much computers learn how to do, it's how we come together as humans that matters. That's all for this episode
0: of AI and You. Please leave a rating and comment and share with your friends. Get the book Artificial Intelligence and You and see more videos and articles at net. That's a i a n d y o u. Dot .net where you can also send us your questions thank you for listening